Support for WABE comes from the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. If you love Atlanta, you can invest in the big picture. Learn more at cfgreateratlanta.org. I'm Erlon Woods. I'm Nigel Poor. We're the hosts and creators of Ear Hustle from PRX's Radiotopia. Ear Hustle is a show about life inside prison, but it's not your typical prison podcast. In this next season, we've got stories about the objects people keep inside their prison cells. About residents in a women's prison who say they want to stay there. And the most beautiful prison garden. Erlon, I will never forget it. Ear Hustle. Stories about life on the inside told by those who live it. Find Ear Hustle wherever you get your podcasts. Closer Look continues now here on 90.1 WABE. This is Atlanta's Choice for NPR. I'm Rose Scott. We all know every 10 years the federal government sets out to count every American household. We all know this as the U.S. Census. Now the count is used to decide where and how to distribute federal funding and to reapportion the U.S. House of Representatives. For that reason, local leaders, including Atlanta Mayor Keisha Lance Bottoms, well, they've all been urging residents to participate. The federal government uses census data to decide our representation in Congress and how much money is returned to communities like ours to support essential things such as schools, public transportation, and public safety. So make sure that you fill out the census. Get counted so that ATL counts. Thank you. Georgia could lose up to $200 million per year in federal money for Medicaid if counting for the 2020 census ends September 30th. That's according to the American Statistical Association. And we talked about Georgia's slow response to the census with WABE News reporter Roxanne Scott. Thanks for having me, Rose. Let's begin here. At this time, is it clear, barring any other legal challenges, the deadline for the census count will be originally scheduled? Well, uh, no, it's not (laughs) clear. So civil rights organizations have sued the Census Bureau for moving up the timeline to September. Federal judge says for now the Census Bureau needs to keep counting people. And we'll find out more later this month um, what will come out of that case if the Census Bureau does have to continue counting or if they can end wrap things up September 30th. Pre-pandemic, counting was supposed to end um, the end of July. But because of the pandemic, the Census Bureau said it needed more time. So that was extended until October. But the Census Bureau moved that deadline to September 30th. So even though the census has suspended operations a bit because of the pandemic and census officials themselves said that they needed more time to complete the census, even to the point where they asked Congress for an extension, um, they still ended up moving up the deadline, um, cutting it a month short. We know that according to the Urban Institute, look, Georgia is one of the states most at risk for an undercount in 2020. And that's based on everything that you just said, why it was so important. And the the groups that the Census Bureau has traditionally undercounted, it still includes Roxanne renters, immigrants, black Americans, and also has a growing problem of counting children under five years old. Georgia had one of the highest undercounts of young children. That's right. These are groups that the census traditionally undercounts, even in a non-pandemic year. They traditionally undercount um, some people of color, Black Americans, for example, immigrants, renters, the poor, marginalized groups. And so when you have this now 2020 where there's a pandemic, operations stopped, 
then they restarted. Now there's a shortened timeline. Um, a lot of these groups are concerned that, yeah, we're going to undercount people again, and that's going to have political implications and, and how much money that the, that the state gets. And um, one thing is that the census, while it does traditionally undercount these groups of people, um, it tends to slightly under, overcount, I should say, it tends to slightly overcount the white population or older people. And there's a variety of reasons for that. What do you mean by and overcount so, for our listeners? So, yeah, for example, um, say you are a homeowner, say you own two homes, right? Mm -hmm. And maybe... Um, earlier in the year, you were at one home, right? You filled out the census there, and then you went to your second home, for example, and then you filled out the census there as well. So now you're counted twice, right? This also kind of goes with sometimes um, children who kind of divide their time among two parents, mm -hmm. for example. Maybe one parent is going to, you know, if they always fill out the census, they're going to fill out the census for that child. And then, the you know, the other parent is going to do that as well. And that tends to happen with um, with white people. And as we wrap up, just for clarity, as we mentioned at the beginning of this conversation, that the new census date was still kind of up in the air. Um, do you know what comes next if it changes again? Um, I have no idea. I'll be looking for that towards that um, that date. What happens at that um, with that case if the census? will be able to continue counting people if they are allowed to keep their deadline of September 30th. So I'll I'll be waiting along with everyone else. Nothing like waiting for a federal court or Supreme Court to weigh in. From our WAB newsroom, Roxanne Scott, no relation. If she was, that'd be okay too. Thank you for all your work covering this issue. We really appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Sunny skies, cool weather is here. Welcome to this Monday edition of Closer Look. I'm Rose Scott. Coming up in just a moment, remembering the life and legacy of Supreme Court Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg. With her cases, she broke down barriers, made some cracks that made it easier for somebody like me coming through 20 years later with black skin on top of being a woman to get through the door. Plus, what's next when it comes to nominating her successor? We're just talking about process, you know, how quickly should this happen? When should this happen? Should, should there be a vote? Should there be a nomination? But once we have a nominee, which President Trump has announced we will have quite soon, that all changes. All those reflections coming up in just a moment. And now on to the other news, as always, the United States and COVID-19. At this time, the U.S. is nearing 200,000 deaths. This after the global number of confirmed cases has now reached 30 million. That's all according to Johns Hopkins University. And here in the state of Georgia, well, they've reached a milestone number as well, surpassing 300,000 confirmed cases just last week. And at this time, there are 306,155 COVID-19 cases here in Georgia. Well, actually, we could say infections. We'll have more on that in just a moment. Now, that's all according to the Georgia Department of Public Health. And also 27,377 hospitalizations of those 5,002 are ICU admissions. Here in Georgia, 6,602 have reportedly died due to the coronavirus. Well, joining me now, as he always does, to give me an update on all things related to coronavirus from our WAB newsroom and host of the podcast, Did You Wash Your Hands? Sam Whitehead. 
Sam, as always, thanks for taking the time. I appreciate it. Hey, Rose. Thanks for having me. Let's begin here because this is another global number that we're now hearing. 30 million confirmed coronavirus cases now around the world. What do you make of that? Yeah, I mean, the numbers are pretty staggering, right? I think it's important to understand when we're talking about kind of cumulative numbers of cases like that, it's not 30 million people actively sick, right? Um, You know, a lot of those people have gotten better. But I think it's important to note, too, that we are seeing also very large numbers of deaths, right? Here today in the country, we're likely to cross the line into 200,000 people dead. Here in Georgia, that number is right around 6,600. And so, you know, it's been six to seven months of of living with this pandemic, and these numbers really show the scale of uh, its impact. Well, let's bring this back to Georgia, because at the time of our conversation, we're looking at more than 300,000, what they call confirmed COVID-19 cases since March. And to just sort of reiterate what you just talked about in terms of those global numbers. So when listening says, well, is that the same case here, Mr. Whitehead? Are you saying that here in Georgia that we're not saying there are actively 300,000 people who are sick with the virus? Yeah, that's true. I mean, it's important to know that that kind of cumulative case number is just always going to keep ticking up, right? It's a question of how fast it ticks up, um, which is something to watch for. Uh, But yeah, here in Georgia, we've had, you know, over 300,000 cases which puts us in the top 10 when we think about other U.S. states uh, and the number of cumulative cases that we've had with our deaths to around 6,600. That also puts us right around the top 10. And it's important to note, especially as we're talking today, Rose, after weeks of progress here in the state, we had seen new cases and the percent positivity, the statistic we look at, both of those have been declining for many weeks, Um, but last week, those uh, positive indicators that were showing signs of of improvement, that improvement looks like it's slowing down a little bit. Let's focus a moment on Georgia and how it compares to other states right now. You have obtained the latest White House Coronavirus Task Force, which puts Georgia 14th in the country for rates of new COVID-19 cases. But that data is actually almost from about two weeks ago, so that could change, couldn't it? Sure. And it's it's a little bit on the timing of these reports. Mm-hmm. So these are put out by the White House Coronavirus Task Force every Sunday, which means the latest one that was produced was actually made yesterday, right? It would have been on the 20th of September. We're talking on the 21st. It then takes states a little bit of time to get those reports from the White House. And it then takes reporters like myself a little bit of time to get those reports from our sources, right? So it tends to be kind of Tuesday each week that we kind of are able to see what the White House said the previous Sunday, and they're looking at data from the week leading up to that Sunday. Mm -hmm. So the numbers that we end up talking about are a little bit delayed. And that's actually something that state officials here, both with the Department of Public Health and the governor's office, with Governor Brian Kemp's office, have really pointed to. They say, this is not the most up-to-date data we have they say our state data is is the most up to date. But sure, Georgia in this latest report um, that we have been able to obtain uh, was right around 14th when it comes to the rate of new cases. That was a little bit of an improvement from the previous report. But like I said, when we're looking at these indicators, especially new cases and rates of new cases, some of Georgia's progress looks like it's slowing down a little bit. Well, and that White House report also notes that Georgia is making progress, but does warn college campuses are still considered COVID-19 hotspots. 
Yeah, and the fear is that as we've seen cases spike, if we want to think about in Athens at the University of Georgia, um, in Statesboro down at Georgia Southern, the White House reports really say that these outbreaks on college campuses really could bleed over into the community, right? Mm -hmm. We have to think that college campuses are not islands. Uh, the students who live there live in these towns. They potentially are going to travel home to different parts of the state, different parts of the country and the world to see their families. And so the White House has pointed out for multiple weeks now that these outbreaks on college campuses can really fuel outbreaks in places where there are no college campuses, right? So that's the concern is that with these spikes in cases on college campuses, it, it could very easily undo some of the progress that we've seen here in the state. Well, let's talk about their progress. What can you tell our listeners? Where is the state making progress at this time? Georgia's progress right now, like I said, is slowing down. We had this big peak in cases in late July. Infections are down since then. But we have seen the, you know, how fast those infections are going down. That rate has slowed down a little bit. And over the last week, it looks like the state is starting to plateau. The same with the number of diagnostic tests that return positive results, this indicator of percent positivity that we're looking at. So we're kind of in this limbo right now, Rose, if we look at Georgia's numbers. And I think the real thing to know is that just as easily as cases could continue to decline um, from this point of maybe a little bit of stasis, the opposite could also be true, right? Mm -hmm. So we're, we're, we're kind of going to have to wait and see, I think, um, what the next week brings before we really know if the progress the state of Georgia has been making is, is going to continue. Well, Sam, you and I both know that between the science and politics, they haven't always been on the same page about this virus. You speak to a lot from both arenas, but especially from the science field. You recently had a conversation with Dr. Carlos Del Rio, everyone knows here has been a guest on the show, an infectious disease specialist at Emory University. What are you what are folks like him from the from that field saying about Georgia's progress or do they agree with what you're saying and what the White House says? Well I, I think the takeaway from talking to folks like Dr. Del Rio is that yes, Georgia has making been making progress, but they would like to see it happening a lot faster. Right. Um, and they would like to, I mean, and, and Dr. Del Rio points this out all the time, cases uh, and infections are still well above where they were earlier this year when the state entered a shelter in place, when the state left the shelter in place. Right. So, yeah, the numbers are improving, um, but I think it's it's important to remember where we've been over the course of the pandemic. Right. I think sometimes people's memories are short. <laughs> so <laughs> yes. that's a point that Dr. Del Rio has made to me many times. It's Yes, we're making progress, but that progress could be faster because the real thing to know is as long as there is still community transmission out there, this is still just, you know, a, a, a pot that's on a low simmer that very easily could boil over, right? So um, maybe that's an analogy for people to think about. Yes, things are getting better, but they're, they're still far from where they uh, public health experts think that they should be for us to maybe breathe a sigh of relief. And you actually had a conversation with the former head of the CDC, Dr. Tom Frieden, and he spoke out against what he would call political tampering in the fight against COVID-19. Let's take a quick listen. I just wish we could all focus on the fact that there's only one enemy here. It's a virus. And the more we divide, the more the virus can continue to conquer us. So, Sam, in that conversation that you had with Dr. Tom Frieden, what did he offer some other takeaways from the intersection of the pandemic and politics? You know, Rose, it's it's not a new phenomenon. We, we've seen over the course of this pandemic, 
politics and public health uh, not in total agreement with each other. And it's actually been a pretty bad week for that for the CDC. Mm -hmm. We've seen multiple reports out of outlets like the New York Times and Politico about uh, Trump administration political appointees in the Department of Health and Human Services, which is the agency that the CDC is a part of, actually really trying to influence public health information the CDC is pointing out and uh, is, is putting out there to people. Uh, Dr. Frieden's take is ultimately that's very harmful. People in the middle of a pandemic need to be able to trust that the nation's preeminent public health agency, the CDC, is actually giving them good information that is not influenced by politics. Mm -hmm. And so, like he said in that in that cut of tape there, if if we let the political divisions, um, you know, get in the way of us fighting this fighting this pandemic, the virus doesn't care who you vote for. It doesn't care where you live. Um, you know, it's kind of an equal opportunity uh, uh, pathogen, right? And so letting politics get tangled up in the public health infrastructure and public health messaging, ultimately, he thinks is, is going to be very harmful. And Sam, as we wrap up, let's talk about the question that everyone is asking. First of all, when will there be a vaccine? When is there a deadline to distribute this vaccine? President Donald Trump has talked about possibly before the election, then before the end of the year. Many folks say that's not going to happen. What are folks, health officials here in Georgia, what's their take on the vaccine? Well, you know, the CDC a few weeks ago asked states to go ahead and put in place this uh, kind of distribution network to get a vaccine out to people um, if one is ever developed, right? I think it's important to know that um, getting a vaccine is an if, not necessarily a when, even though there are lots of candidates that are being developed right now. So officials here in Georgia are already working on that um, distribution network. Governor Brian Kemp has appointed the state's insurance commissioner, John King. Uh, who does have a military background um, to kind of set up that logistical network. Uh, you know, the president has said multiple times we could get a vaccine before the end of the year. Public health experts like Dr. Robert Redfield, who leads the CDC, um, you know, he said last week that that time frame isn't the time frame for the general population, right? Mm -hmm. He says it could be well into 2021 before People, you know, everyday people, people who aren't necessarily first responders, people who aren't first in line to get this vaccine could even see a vaccine. So general distribution to the public mid-2021. And, you know, I think too, Rose, um, it's important to know that just because there is a vaccine, vaccines are rarely 100% effective, right? So just if we get a vaccine, that doesn't mean that everyone who takes it is going to have perfect protection against the coronavirus. And I, I think what that tells me is that we're gonna to have to really think about, you know, these public health prevention measures we have now, wearing masks, keeping distant from people. The need to do those is not gonna go away when there's a vaccine. There's not gonna be like a, a, a switch flip as soon as we get the vaccine and our lives are gonna go back to normal. I think that the way that our lives have changed already, that these changes are gonna be with us for some time. Mm, and that's something that a lot of folks agree upon. WAB health reporter and host of the podcast, Did You Wash Your Hands, as always, giving us good information. Sam Whitehead. Sam, thanks for taking the time. I really appreciate it. Thank you, Rose. Support for WABE comes from the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. You can go beyond giving to impact. Learn more at cf.greateratlanta.org. 
The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. Closer Look continues now here on 90.1 WABE, Atlanta's choice for NPR. I'm Rose Scott. Quote, our nation has lost a justice of historic statute. That's from Chief Justice John Roberts. He goes on to say, we at the Supreme Court have lost a cherished colleague. Today we mourn, but with confidence that future generations will remember Ruth Bader Ginsburg as we knew her, a tireless and resolute champion of justice. Close quote. As the news broke Friday evening, sitting Supreme Court Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg died due to complications from cancer of the pancreas. She was 87 years old. She sat on the high court for 27 years before her death, and during much of that time, she was battling not only pancreatic cancer, colon cancer, and lung cancer. She is remembered as an advocate for women's rights and as a leader of the court's liberal justices. People ask me sometimes, when do you think it will be enough? When will it, will there be enough women on the court? And my answer is, when there are nine. <laughs> Uh, that was Justice Ginsburg in an interview with C-SPAN earlier this year. Now her death has also spurred debate regarding her successor. In a statement, as first reported by NPR's Nina Totenberg, in a statement dictated to her granddaughter days before her passing, Justice Ginsburg reportedly said, quote, My most fervent wish is that I will not be replaced until a new president is installed. Close quote. But let's shift for a moment and talk about the life of this jurist and her legal legacy. Joining me now is former Chief Justice of the Georgia Supreme Court and currently a partner at Smith, Gambrill and Russell Law Firm, the Honorable Leah Ward Sears. Justice Sears, thank you, as always. I appreciate it. Welcome back to the program. Oh, thank, thank you very much, Rose. It's, it's a pleasure to be here. Where do you begin to reflect on the legal legacy of Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg? The legal legacy, because she, she was a North Star for me. I, I, not just a rock star, but a North Star. Her, her personal life was the kind I wanted. I wanted a family and I wanted to be big in my profession. But her legal legacy begins as a, a feminist, an unabashed feminist, with those six cases that she argued uh, with the ACLU Women's Project uh, when she was a lawyer. Mm -hmm. uh, the first case was the Frontier case, and I followed all of them. And those were the cases, Rose, that uh, started breaking down barriers. I, we're both Cornell graduates, but I'm 20 years after her. Mm -hmm. And she, with her, with her cases, she broke down barriers, made some cracks that made it easier for somebody like me coming through 20 years later with black skin on top of being a woman to get through the door. And so I admired her and, and, and Justice O'Connor greatly. In listening and reading all the tributes, there is one aspect that is being shared about Justice Ginsburg, which is of this, and I'm going to quote here, she's one of the most profound and profoundly transformative legal minds of our time. And I'm asking the guests that I talked to today, how much truth is in that statement? Uh, there are justices on the court and or justices on many courts, to be honest with you, who are transformative figures. Uh, 
wonderful, wonderfully like uh, the Warren Court. Mm -hmm. uh, Justice Warren was a transformative figure, and it was the Warren Court. I think Rehnquist was mm -hmm. too, but certainly Ruth Bader Ginsburg will will join that that group. She uh, again paving the way for uh, justice, social justice, and minorities and the rights of women, which, you know, in, in an era, I think most people would consider uh, some of the cases that she took up pretty laughable uh, mm -hmm. because it's just, but this was a time when it was okay to discriminate against women legally uh, be, as because we had to take care of women. We had to make women safe. It, that wasn't really what it was at all. We really didn't want women to come out of their homes and, and compete with men, mostly white men. But mm -hmm. but uh, that was the thought. And so she was making a case to white men that women women could be were as good as uh, were as good as men. And that was weird back then. You of all people also know the road of inclusive culture in the legal profession. It's come a long way, but there's still a lot more to do. It's still slow. And considering the time that Justice Ginsburg even entered law school makes it even more remarkable of what she faced and how she dealt with it. She could have easily just walked away. and She didn't. She did. And she found a way as opposed to walking away. She couldn't get in the door. You know, if she were, and she, I think she said this, if she had been allowed to do what I do, what I was managed to do was get in a, a nice law firm. She would be a senior partner when she died, making a lot of money. That those were clo doors were closed to her because she was uh, uh, Jewish, mm -hmm. uh, because she was a woman, but she also said because she was a mother. And men just thought that a, a mother should be at home with her children. Okay, and so that was that. And so she goes to Rutgers. She's still working at Rutgers, but she's over uh, volunteering at the ACLU with her husband. Mary's a great man, very great man, who was immensely supportive of her. Uh, she said it was uh, uh, Marty Ginsburg was the only man at Cornell, my alma mater, who wanted to marry a, a woman with a brain. And I think what we're finding out now for a lot of folks who didn't know, Justice Ginsburg wrote her first U.S. Supreme Court brief, what, in 1971? Well, I was in high school. Okay, mm -hmm. I was like in 10th grade then. But the, I mean, these were the first, and maybe not the exact first, but these were the earliest women. You know, in Atlanta, it would be Isabel Gates Webster. I don't know. These are black women. Mm -hmm. There were a group of women, very, very small women. Uh, Powell, just Judge Powell, the Juvenile Justice Center is named after mm -hmm after her, uh, Romay Powell. I mean, there were just one or two of them, and she would have been in that cohort that didn't get a chance to go to a big firm, mm -hmm. uh, really wasn't put in, didn't even get a chance to go to a small firm, because, I mean, look, when I came along, I was thought of as kind, and this is in, I graduated in 1980, and I was thought of as odd for a big law firm uh, even black male lawyers mm -hmm. thought, looked down uh, on the first, uh, our group of women that were coming out. And that's the reason why the Georgia Association 
of black women lawyers was founded because we had no leadership in Gate City at all. I love Gate City and all that, but that's what the way it was back then. You know, you were just like the civil rights movement. Mm -hmm. Women were supposed to stuff envelopes and that kind of stuff. And we were we weren't having it, you know. Mm -hmm. So we were still fighting. I mean, she was fighting in 60 when she graduates mm -hmm. her first argument in 71 and shoot i'm i'm coming i'm her daughter's age because my mother's 90 mm -hmm. and uh, i'm still fighting i'm fighting to that today we all are when we reflect on what her life her legal legacy could mean for so many women now coming be behind you uh, being 20 years behind her at cornell but you know, for someone coming through Cornell now, you know, what can they take away? What should they take away from Justice Ginsburg's legal legacy? Oh, you stick know? with it. I mean, well, stick with it if you like it. Stick with it and don't get bullied out of it. And don't check out of it uh, because it's too hard. Because, I mean, no pain. I tell my children this all the time, bros. No pain, no gain. I used to complain because when I ran, when I was appointed to the bench, I had three contested elections, mm -hmm. three contested elections. Most justices did not. It was painful. But look at where I am today versus the people that didn't go through that. Same thing with Justice Ginsburg. Mm -hmm. I mean, she had, it was painful to be rejected as a Jewish woman, as a woman, as a mother. But look where she ended up. And not only not not only did she get the court, but I mean she's going down in American history as one of the great leaders, a woman of integrity of, of for all time. I mean she helped free men and women and children, and uh, so that's not a bad deal. But I I know it wasn't easy. From what we're hearing, and especially from those who who were close to her and. NPR's Nina Totenberg reporting that in a statement dictated to her granddaughter days before her passing, uh, Justice Ginsburg reportedly said, quote, my most fervent wish is that I will not be replaced until the new president is installed, close quote. What do you make of now that this has become, uh, and I guess always when you appoint a Supreme Court justice, it's always going to be political in a sense, but what do you make of all this conversation now about whether or not um, they should wait? until after the election or, you know. These are always political. Well, first off, a sitting justice doesn't get to dictate where their seat to, you know, who gets to put whom in a seat. Mm -hmm. As much as I love her, you know, that's just, those are just wonderful words, but, um, or they're just words with mm -hmm. no judgment on top of them. But what I make of it in general is that the court is being damaged it's being terribly damaged. It's been in the process of being damaged for years now. And I would like to see a commission or something recalculate, rehaul the court uh, because it's uh, an eye for an eye, you, I punch you, you punch me. Mm -hmm. And it's on both sides, you know, with no more super majority. It's going to be just a majority now. Merrick Garland, now we're going to get you here uh, for this. It's just too much. I would like to see term limits for Supreme Court justices of 18 years of justice. I'd like to see their terms staggered 
so that uh, more ju more presidents have a chance to put justices on. The stakes are too high. When about 20 or 30 years ago, the average justice served on the court about 10 years, mm -hmm. 10 or 15 years. Given the life expectancy now, they're serving 30, 35 years. Um, that's too long. And the stakes are too high uh, nowadays. I would like to see them come in, you do 18 years, and that's it. If you take the stakes down, you know, maybe a couple of more justices on the court, mm -hmm. maybe a lot more justices, judges on the circuit courts and the district courts. I don't know. But I do think somebody needs to, to establish, and maybe this sounds like pie in the sky or something, but a blue ribbon commission that will reform the court and do so without needing a constitutional amendment. And some of these things I mentioned might, like the term limits will require a constitutional amendment, but maybe they could get underneath that mm -hmm. by having senior, you take senior judge status, mm -hmm. so you're on the court, but you don't hear cases or, so I've been trying to figure it out. It's figure outable, I'll say that. Well, I'll ask you then, Deb, how optimistic are you that you know, Congress would approve a changing that these are not lifetime appointments because it would take it would take an act of Congress. Right. I have I'm not optimistic that this particular Congress. Right. <laughs> I have no optimism at all, but I may be in the future and maybe in the near future. Some real leaders will emerge who will do what is best for the country and not just play politics and, and grab for power, but we'll do, because any power grab is always short-term, always short-term. It doesn't matter whether you're on the left or the right, it's always short-term, and it always comes back around to bite you in the butt. And so we really need to reform the court or we are going to destroy the court. And the court has always been the last bastion of our of our real democracy and it's it's losing our trust and confidence mm. former chief justice of the georgia supreme court and also currently a partner at smith gambrill and russell law firm the honorable leah ward sears justice sears thank you so much for taking the time i really appreciate it as always well. thank you thank you Closer Look continues now here on 90.1 WABE, Atlanta's Choice for NPR. I'm Rose Scott. As we continue now with conversations regarding the death of Supreme Court Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg, now there's a lot of conversation turned to what will happen in terms of President Trump, his nomination, a vote, etc., etc. Well, joining me now to discuss where our nation goes from here to there is Sonia West, Otis Brumby Distinguished Professor in First Amendment Law at the University of Georgia School of Law. Professor, thanks for taking the time. I really appreciate it. I'm happy to be here. Before we get into that conversation, let's talk about, let's reflect on the legal legacy of Justice Ginsburg. How do you begin to sum up through your reflection? It's difficult uh, to sum up how there can be such a giant legacy left by what was at least physically such a tiny, tiny um, woman with a soft uh, voice. But I think the first place we all go when we think about her legacy is what she did when it came to our understanding of equal protection when we think about discrimination that is based on sex. 
this was the area that she uh, really made a name for herself when she was practicing, when she was working for the ACLU and uh, brought a very strategic and very successful series of challenges to laws um, on the basis of uh, discrimination on the basis of sex that really opened up the eyes of the federal courts and the Supreme Court and a number of people uh, to what these types of laws were really doing and the impact that they had. And this was a legacy that she continued once she was on the Supreme Court herself. And through your lens, your own personal reflection as it relates to what many are calling, I've been I've been seeing this, one aspect that was shared was Justice Ginsburg is one of the most profound and profoundly transformative legal minds of our time. Um, I think there's a lot of truth. Uh, she, I think herself, would have uh, dismissed much of this. She believed very strongly that she would say that she stood on the shoulders of giants, that uh, she was part of a chain uh, that sort of slowly moved the ball forward uh, and did her part, but not in, in and of itself the sort of star, um, if, if you would. Uh, but I think it's hard to deny uh, the profound impact uh, that she did have. And a really key part of this that was very different and really brought success in an area where we had not seen this kind of movement, this idea of equal protection um, based on sex, was her decision to challenge not laws that seem to discriminate um, against women primarily, but rather to bring her first challenges against laws that discriminated against men, mm -hmm. where it was men who seemed to be the ones who, who suffered um, by the fact that the law included gender stereotypes, whether it was stereotypes that they might not be um, uh, uh, the ones who were primarily in charge of uh, caring for children, or stereotypes that they might not uh, desire to be nurses or to become good nurses, uh, uh, whether it was a stereotype about uh, their ability to pass on even sort of seemingly boring things like tax benefits or um, other types of, of federal uh, benefits, um, uh, to have those benefits be able to pass on to their family. So she used these types of uh, challenges where maybe there wasn't already built in quite as much resistance to the ideas we would have had with um, uh, laws that seem to uh, really disfavor women. But by doing so, she laid a groundwork and I think opened up people's eyes to the ways that sexual stereotypes were built into mm -hmm. our laws. Well, and now let's shift because even just within an hour and hours of the announcement of her death, then here comes the political back and forth. Now, we know the Constitution permits the president to nominate a justice, even to the last hours of their term. For folks that don't know, let's explain this process to them. The president has the authority to appoint or a nominee, and then the Senate would need to approve that. What do you make of this now? Right. So as you said, the Constitution, uh, it's a constitutional matter about how we get our, our justices that the president nominates and then the uh, Senate, uh, through the advice and consent of the Senate, the Senate can confirm the nominee. So we uh, need input from at least part of the two other branches of government in order to, to get our uh, new justices. And while we like to at least um, hold up the ideal that 
Supreme, the Supreme Court and Supreme Court justices are separate from politics, that they are not the political branch of, of government. There's sort of no doubt that the selection of uh, justices comes from the very much our political branches of government. So uh, that is part that is uh, worked into the system where, uh, although I think many people would say that in the past, uh, we've managed to set aside more of the political sort of bickering and partisanship um, when it came to selecting uh, justices. But there's no doubt that going into uh, justice, the vacancy that's left by uh, Justice Ginsburg, we are not coming with a clean slate. Uh, we're coming with a lot of baggage where um, we had the Senate Republicans led by Senator Mitch McConnell uh, make the decision when Justice Scalia died while he was on the bench in um, February of 2016, that there should not only not be a vote um, on a justice or on President Obama's nominee, Merrick Garland, mm -hmm. uh, but that there should not even be any hearings, uh, that there should not move forward at all with this uh, confirmation process uh, because it was too close to a presidential election. Mm -hmm. Now here we are, you know, six weeks and change away from the presidential election. We again have a uh, vacancy right before a presidential election and Senator McConnell uh, has said he that he would move forward uh, and move forward quite uh, quickly. So um, his argument is that he thought that you needed to wait in a presidential election year if the president and the Senate, the control of the Senate were from different parties, that we don't have that situation mm -hmm. uh, right now. I think people can judge for themselves how persuasive they think that argument is or isn't. Well, and I'm going to ask you to now put on your, your hat that intersects you as a professor in First Amendment law, and then as a professor looking at this from a political lens. Let's be really clear, too, that we know that politics are at play here. But with President Trump already citing that I am going to nominate a woman, could that play a factor in it at all? I mean, could that also sway some of those GOP senators, and there have been some names thrown out there, who have already publicly said that they would rather wait next year in order to nominate uh, someone. What do you make of that? So, I mean, there's really sort of two ways to come into this question. And right now we're in the first phase, which is thinking about process. We don't have a nominee. Uh, we're not talking about any particular person. We're not starting to sort of imagine what they might like be like on the court or what they're looking at, what their past jurisprudence might show us about their opinions. We're just talking about process. You know, how quickly should this happen? When should this happen? Should, should there be a vote? Should there be a nomination? Um, but once we have a nominee, which President Trump has announced we will have quite soon, um, that all changes. And now we have a real person, a real person who we can look at and talk about, who will, you know, give a, a talk with President Trump, who we will get to hear from, who who's past opinions, assuming this person was a, is a judge um, currently, which is typically they are, start looking into their past writings, their past opinions, getting a sense. And I do think that changes things. I do think it makes it much more um, personal. And if this is a nominee who um, really appeals to some of these senators who might be on the fence about the process, question. Mm -hmm. um, if they find this nominee, and particularly if they if it's a woman and they find the idea of having 
uh, a conservative woman uh, join the bench and what that might do for the types of opinions we get from the Supreme Court. Um, that might change their view of it because it's not abstract anymore. It's, it's a real person um, with a real history and who we could have this, this actual image of um, being on the court. So I think it will be a shift. I think we'll have that shift soon. And I think it does sort of change the terms. Um, uh, I think the Democrats will try very hard to have it not change the terms. They will try very hard not to talk about the person. They'll want to continue talking about the process, but um, we will indeed have an actual nominee. And, and I do think that will change our perspective. And finally, professors, we wrap up, and this is history in the making because President Donald Trump, again, will put forth a nominee for our history folks here. There hasn't been another president that's had this many um, nominations to the high court, has there? Well, so for uh, a president to get potentially three uh, Supreme Court justice nominations, to be able to put three people on the Supreme Court in their first term, in their first four years, uh, is is extremely unusual. I, I didn't look up the history, but I, I think President Nixon might have been able to do this. He had a very quick um, turnover on the court mm-hmm. after his approach, but I'm not sure if it was all in his first term. But yes, it's highly, highly unusual. and. Uh, it really sort of shows, I think, some flaws. A lot of people think some flaws in terms of our system about how we put Supreme Court justices that the idea that one president uh, in one term, uh, you know, here in their first term, whether or not there's a second one, um, could have this kind of impact on a, an institution where the justices have life tenure, uh, where it really could be for many of us close to the rest of our lifetimes that we are you know, living in a world where this impact on the court um, is very real. There's only nine justices, at least currently. And um, so uh, that's just a huge, huge, huge um, impact. And I and I think it is hard to deny sort of the the randomness of it, sort of the arbitrariness of it. And and I think it's worthwhile to have a discussion about whether this is the way we should be doing it, whether this is the right way to be making these decisions about who sits on the court. Well, in that conversation, it, it would it would not be a new conversation. Many people have said that they think lifetime appointments, uh, that, that they think that should be changed. And I think, and someone will let me know if I'm wrong, but I believe President Nixon was able to appoint four. I'll double check on that. If I'm wrong, I'll get an email, Professor. It'll fall all on me. But as we wrap up and we, we begin talking about Justice Ginsburg, I asked you about her legal legacy, but from the standpoint of being a model and being a template for women still traveling that road. I mean, you of all people know too, and I'm going to, I'm also having a conversation with uh, former state chief justice, Leah Ward Sears. You know that the, the legal road for women still is, is met with some challenges. What do you hope that uh, justice Ginsburg, her template, her life will, will mean for so many young women coming up in this field? Right. And and again, just like with her legal legacy, I think this legacy is equally important and equally powerful. The the role model that she uh, was for so many um, young women, I think, is un- you know, unbelievably important. And it's a role model that includes, um, you know, standing among a sea of men when you were in law school and there were questions about your right to to be there it's Mm -hmm. a legacy of um you know continuing to work hard and do your best work even when you couldn't find a law firm that would hire you even though you graduated at the top of your of your class um and it's a you know it's a legacy of of being smart and you know chipping away piece by piece uh at the obstacles that she saw uh in front of her 
But I also think it's an important legacy in that uh, I think to most people who, who follow Justice Ginsburg's career, she in a lot of ways really found her voice uh, much later um, in her career, mm -hmm. really sort of after in the period that came after Justice O'Connor um, retired and Justice Ginsburg became for a while there the only woman on the Supreme Court. And it clearly affected her. And she started to dissent more often and she started to dissent more forcefully at um, opinions that she didn't agree with. And this in a lot of ways is what attracted a lot of this attention, um, this following that she grew to have, you know, which was sort of very unlikely because she was this woman in sort of the later years of her life and mm -hmm. um, to find this kind of, of fame and, you know, sort of uh, celebrity. But I hope that's a legacy. And I think that will be a legacy that uh, follows her, that idea of finding your voice, of standing up, of, of speaking, you know, out against things that you think are wrong and to do it courageously and to do it powerfully. And that is something Justice Ginsburg did. Sonia West, Otis Brumby, Distinguished Professor in First Amendment Law at the University of Georgia School of Law. Professor West, thank you for taking the time. I really appreciate it. Good conversation. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. That's it for this edition of Closer Look, which is produced by Grace Walker and LaShawn Hudson. Our engineer is Shelley Canavy. If you missed any of today's program, it's online at wabe.org slash Closer Look. And of course, you can listen to Closer Look weeknights at 8 p.m. And listen whenever you want, because Closer Look is now available as a podcast. Just visit NPR One or your favorite streaming app and subscribe. This is 90.1 WABE, Atlanta's choice for NPR. I'm Rose Scott. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. Local, state, national politics. WABE and NPR have the coverage you need. I'm Jim Burris, host of WABE's All Things Considered. Whether it's on the air at 90.1, streaming online, or connecting through our mobile app, WABE keeps you on top of election 2024 in what's sure to be a pivotal year in politics. And for candidates and ballot information, visit our election hub at wabe.org election 2024.